0: Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention breed love to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. Okay, so we're jumping back into discrimination and disparities with Thomas, author Thomas Sowell. And uh, we're still in chapter one. I'm going to read a quick excerpt to get us rolling here. Uh, and this is around page 24 in chapter one under the, the heading, the lure of determinism. Soul writes, the belief that disparities in incomes are indicators of disparities in the treatment of those with lower incomes is part of a more general set of assumptions that some one particular factor is the key or dominant factor behind differences in outcomes. In the early 20th century, the key factor behind economic, intellectual, and other disparities among different groups was assumed to be genetics. That view was as dominant then as the opposite view today that disparities in outcomes imply discrimination. American colleges and universities had hundreds of courses on eugenics then, just as many academic institutions today have courses and whole departments teaching that outcome disparities imply discrimination. So I, I just wanted to read, this is a great way to look at the madness in the world to some extent. And that, um, you know, just because a large group of people believe a thing to be true does not make that thing true. And as Sol points out, there was this, I guess, quote unquote, conventional wisdom or widespread assumption that genetics had to do with these disparities and outcomes and capabilities and whatnot. And, um, Today we have the opposite, right? That, that, that if you were to say that, that there was a genetic cause to out to disparities and in, in outcome, um, you would be lambasted or canceled or something like that. But this was the, the prevalent or the prevailing view, uh, just a few decades ago. And now we kind of have this opposite situation where every difference in outcome is assumed to be discrimination. So I guess the the moral here is that the conventional conventional wisdom itself can be misleading.
1: That's why wisdom itself is unconventional or real intelligence is unconventional because there are all these seductive kinds of thoughts that people can fall for. And again, I really never get tired of reading about it, but what Sol is on here is the invincible fallacy, which very tersely is that wherever there is a disparity of outcome, it must have been the result of discrimination. And there's a great irony, which we'll get into as we get into chapter two, and that today the vanguard of wokeism is the universities, but the universities having been immune to market pressures and immune to, I guess, the... The self-selection or self-sorting processes, they were the bastion of all these racist or discrimination type two ideals. And they had some of the worst diversity of any organization. And then made this counter-empirical claim, which doesn't exist anywhere in the natural world or anywhere in society or history, that, well, the only fair outcome that we will accept looks like a random sampling of people. And the I was I was rereading this chapter and I it. It dovetails a little bit with some of the work we've done in the past on the fatal conceit okay and i guess at a very very high level what we want to do here is give individuals subtle and compelling arguments against statism and central control because it is very seductive right and so this is very interesting and, and this is the first time that i think this link has actually been explained i've, I've never seen it anywhere in the literature But the fatal conceit and the invincible fallacy are very strongly related to one another. And I want to explain that relation. So the fatal conceit says, all order comes from rational, central planning. Okay, Now watch this. Here's the invincible fallacy. All sorting comes from discrimination. Mm -hmm. And it is the same, the statist mind has a very uneasy relationship with order. And those two things taken together, the fatal conceit and the invincible fallacy, are a recipe for infinite interference, and I wanna explain that. So first, the statist mind believes that, well, there will be no order unless we impose it. And then as soon as order starts to appear or self-organization starts to appear, they say, wait a minute, that's not the order that we meant. We actually want self-organization. And to achieve that, they unsort people. So there's a great irony here, and it is a very seductive series of intellectual traps and it has a lot to do with the zeitgeist in that the emergence from the Dark Ages, right? Or even like going back to the Aristotelian era, they their belief was that reason was the prime and sole organizer of the universe. And Hayek's contribution was bollocks. Morality, religion, intuition, trade practices, all these, the extended order kind of factors are actually what lead to order. So there's, again, so much we can we can jump into here, but I guess really being conscious about the invincible fallacy, number one, and the fatal conceit is gonna give people eyeglasses with which to read the news. Because politicians make this, this is the assumption behind every every solution that they offer. And ironically, they're deeply uncreative in that their solution to everything is more laws and higher taxes. They, <laughs> they, they have never, I've never heard a politician, rarely if ever say, oh, can we solve this with more freedom or can we allow individuals to choose?
0: Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, The uh, intellectual excuses for unlimited interference uh, seem to be bound up in these. the fallacy itself. Um, I'm I'm sorry, it's the invincible. Could you say those two again?
1: Yeah, the invincible fallacy and the fatal conceit.
0: The invincible fallacy and the fatal conceit. I think these are so important. Um, And going forward a couple of pages here, I'll read one more excerpt. To tie that in, Sol writes, other factors enable many other places in the temperate zones to reach higher temperatures than many places in the tropics. None of this contradicts the scientific fact that sunlight is hotter in the tropics, but that unchallenged fact does not mean that the single factor automatically determines all outcomes. Similarly, among human beings, the unchallenged fact of discriminatory bias against various groups and countries around the world does not preclude outcomes from being determined by a wider range of other, of other factors in particular places and times. So this, um, and he goes on to write, and this is important to you. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tie these together. He writes, two of the monumental catas- catastrophes of the 20th century, Nazism and communism, led to the slaughter of millions of human beings by their own governments in the name of either ridding the world of the burden of, quote unquote, inferior races, or ridding the world of, quote unquote, exploiters responsible for the poverty of the exploited. While each of these beliefs might have been testable hypotheses, their greatest political triumphs came as dogmas placed beyond the reach of evidence or logic. Neither Hitler's Mein Kampf nor Marx's capital was an exercise in hypothesis testing, While Karl Marx's three-volume economic treatise was a far greater intellectual achievement, quote-unquote exploitation was at no point in its 2,500 pages treated as a testable hypothesis. Exploitation was instead the foundation assumption on which an elaborate intellectual superstructure was built, and that proved to be a foundation of quicksand. Getting rid of capitalist, quote-unquote, exploiters in communist countries did not raise the living standards of workers, even to levels common in many capitalist countries where workers were presumably still being exploited as marxist conceived the term so this idea that all, the whole all of the literature on marxism at least that marx himself wrote was premised on exploitation which is not something that we can assume axiomatically and nor did he subject that that basic presupposition to any empirical testing whatsoever so the whole thing i mean it's it's built on quicksand the whole thing is kind of like an an act of intellectual masturbation to some extent and i find it um terrible in that because of this flaw in its foundations that it it it's almost becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way that he's writing about exploitation and how it's so intrinsic to everything we do it's so fundamental but in actually building this intellectual superstructure on top of that, it created the most exploitation we've ever seen in the world in the form of, you know, millions starving, millions murdered, you know, all the horrors of, of- And
1: the poorest workers in the world, right? Yes. So so the reason the invincible fallacy is invincible is exactly what you're describing. So not only did the authors of the of invincibly fallacious material so let's look at Mein Kampf what is the belief the belief is that the Aryan race is somehow superior and we can produce better outcomes if we eliminate other races deeply evil belief and these are both forms of collectivism by the way the Marxist belief is that the worker the working class or the proletariat is poor because they're exploited by the bourgeoisie now here's the invincible part of that fallacy and it's amazing because these two lies were sold to millions of people, and this is why I am so deeply concerned with and disappointed by the appearance of Marxism today in the United States. And I, and I think, to be very transparent, I think a, a lot of what passes as wokeism is, in fact, just Marxism in disguise. And the reason for that is the stated goal of Marxism is class warfare, and you want to induce warfare between the haves and the have-nots but I'll just return to this empirical point that Sowell is making. So if Marx had wished to empirically test his philosophy, he would have said, okay, if it is really the case that workers are poor because they're exploited by the bourgeoisie, then wherever we find the most capitalists or the most bourgeoisie, we should find the poorest workers in the world. And in fact, exactly the opposite of this is true. And there is you cannot find a Marxist nation on earth where the standard of living of the workers even remotely approaches the standard of living of workers in a capitalist society. And this is again from this idea that Marxists and statists as a whole are terrified that if there's no intervention from an outside agency, they don't understand the phenomenon of self-sorting, which Sol is talking about. And it just so happens that if you allow individuals to self-sort and we should really dive into concrete examples because Sol is very rich in giving empirical, statistical, historical, even natural examples. If you allow people to self-sort, this goes back to something that we talked about in our very first conversation on central planning. Central planning destroys information. And that's what governments are doing. They're unsorting people. And, and let's see, let's see if we can give a, a very concrete example, which, which we'll kind of bridge into chapter two. So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was concerned because by race, the job hiring statistics were disparate. Okay. And What is important here is that if we do not understand, and I'll define these in just a second, what type of discrimination is operant in a given situation, we will make the wrong policy decisions. So what Sol is trying to do is to help the average American think more clearly so that we can advocate for good policies. And let's look at what the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission did. What they said was, because we, here again, the invincible fallacy at work, because we see disparate statistics by race, we now forbid employers from asking questions about a criminal background, okay? Now, guess what? This is where the difference between intentions and outcomes becomes very stark. As a result, less African-Americans were hired by corporations, and I wanna explain why. So the evidence shows, and again, it has nothing to do with the intentions of Wilkis or Marcus, what their intentions are. It has to do with what the actual outcomes are. The intention was very noble. In actual practice, because we forbade employers from getting precise information about individuals, they had to fall back to a more egregious form of discrimination and just say, well, we're just not going to touch this class of people because statistically and factually, there are different numbers, again, which have nothing to do with race. I'll explain why. For each, for for different races, for different genders, we're all different statistically, but it's due to emergent properties and self-sorting. Very rarely historically, and the burden of proof should be on the people making the accusation, is it due to actual discrimination? So again, what happened there, because the government now, so discrimination, as Seoul explains it, type 1A is what we all want. So this word discrimination is overloaded. And as you pointed out in our prior episode, a discriminating wine connoisseur, right? we have to discriminate between dirt and blueberries when deciding what to There is nothing wrong with that. And the reason uh, that human beings are able to plan and rationally organize the world around them is because we're constantly discriminating. We're making decisions for ourselves and our family around what is best for us based on the information that we have. So discrimination type 1A is highly desirable. What does that mean? You use information about an individual in choosing what to do with that individual. Discrimination type 1B is a slightly more general, but cheaper to achieve. You use information about a group of people. This is where leftists and wokeists and and Marxists get very scared. Use information about a group to make a judgment. And then type 2 discrimination is what nobody wants. This is based on antipathy. This is what we saw in in apartheid South Africa. This is what we saw structural racism, which was on the books in the postbellum South, for instance. This is what the untouchables in India saw and continue to see in, in fact in many cases to this day. So that's type 2 discrimination no one's advocating for that. But I want to I want to really explode the government's error here, the equal employment opportunity commission's error. So first what they did is they said we want more African Americans to be hired. The cause of them not being hired must be type 2 discrimination. We're going to outlaw type 1a discrimination. And now the employer said, well, we can't get precise information about individuals (laughs) now. We have to look what any insurance company, what any rational individual will do. We have to look at statistics about the group as a whole. And now the good individuals in a group suffer because of a few bad apples. So a lot to, to tease out there, but if we don't understand the root cause of a problem, outlawing type 1A discrimination is literally the worst thing that we can do. And again, empirically, the evidence shows that when employers are allowed to run background checks, and this is done irrespective of race, ever, because you 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 cannot know, looking at an individual, just by looking at the race, whether or not that person has a criminal history. And when you forbid companies from running background checks, they now have to use grosser forms of discrimination and the government gets exactly the outcome that they didn't want. It's so ironic.
0: It, it's unbelievably bad. and I. I think I mentioned this before, but um, that old notion that you can take a piece of legislation, whatever it's titled, like what it's supposed to do, right? The Inflation Reduction <laughs> right. Act, for instance, of 2022. What is it actually going to do? Well, it's going to increase inflation. You just take the opposite of the, the legislative title, and that's how you get to its real uh, outcome. And I, that's a heuristic, granted, but it seems, uh, in, the more I study things like this, it seems increasingly true that the government. Intentions often diverge from outcome when it comes to government policymaking. Um, a lot of what you said there is really good. I want to try to unpack some of it. So wokeism as being a rebrand of Marxism, this is a very useful framing. Um, because Marx, you know, the, again, the presupposition here in, in Marxism is that self-sorting or self-organization leads to the absolute exploitation of labor which is the exact opposite of what you see in actual capitalist countries, right? The more self-organization or self-sorting a society is allowed to engage in, which is another way of saying the less government interference is involved, uh, the, the higher the stand, average standard of living for each individual in that society. So this whole the, the premise of that argument is just broken. And I, I guess maybe this is related to, if we just think of what, or capitalism right it's it's um metric is the accumulation of capital capital is that which amplifies returns to labor so why would we expect a pure capitalist society to exploit labor if anything it's making labor more productive right that's the that's the magic of capitalism yet marx just i don't know there's no again as as sol says there's no backing to his claim that capitalism is, is inherently exploitative. It, he just says it and then builds this whole treatise on top of it. And I think Sol is brilliant to identify the cost of obtaining information as actually leading to worse decisions. This is equivalent, in my mind, at least. Maybe, maybe this is just uh, a comparison, but this is in- equivalent to increasing transaction cost, ultimately like there's a cost to retrieving the information. If you increase the transaction cost, then you're going to lower the demand for truthful information, right? You go from type 1A where you're looking at the individual, right? you go from a higher resolution, which the individual is the highest resolution you can get. You go to a lower resolution, you go to the group, right? So if you, the idea of government interference, increasing that cost of obtaining information or this transaction cost is actually pushing individual decision makers away from 1a discrimination into 1b and ultimately towards type 2 which is the one you the one the legislation was intended to avoid in the first place or intended to mitigate. So it's actually again here we have the government legislation creating the outcome that its stated purpose is is intended to mitigate. And so you know i'm i'm just reminded here again of of the mises point that all government action is a misallocation of capital even when they intervene with policies to try and fix these things i know this is a generalization many people would take me take me up on this in an argument i'm sure but i don't see where government intervention actually ever accomplishes the aims that it sets out for itself
1: there's a very good reason for that, by the way, and it has to do with the fact that intervention in complex systems, by very nature of the definition of complex systems, because they're complex, the consequences of an intended action are very, very difficult to couple together because it is, again, a system with billions of variables. And if we're even lucky to have equations to model it, those equations are very likely to be limited in their scope. And so I guess both the Misesian and the Sowellian point of view is that, well, Individuals have very precise information, individuals have responsibilities, and those individuals when allowed to self sort can take into account much more information than any centrally planned authority. So, as an example, there are other disciplines, and let's take an example medicine, where it is assumed, first, do no harm, right? It is this understood that the body is a complex system and you can't just, you know, the whole what's called silver bullets theory, I think, which goes back to arsenic and Ehrlich is like, oh, well, you know, you have this particular problem, let's treat this and then, oh, wait a minute, this is a complected system with thousands of pieces all relating to one another. It's impossible to touch part A without having a, a downstream impact on part Z. So it isn't that information is bad or that planning is bad. It's just that at the coarse level of granularity that government gets those things, it doesn't tend to be very useful. And I want to give some really good examples because the broader point that Seoul is driving here is that it actually turns out, again, empirically, not what people want to be true or fear to be true. It actually turns out that the places where type two discrimination survives the longest are A, government-sponsored monopolies, so non-competitive markets. B, nonprofits and universities. Okay, those are the places where the most type two discrimination shows up because here's the key word, there's no cost imposed on the discriminator. And I want to give a couple examples for this. So first in the postbellum South, the railroad companies, we talked a little bit about this last time, they wanted to maximize occupancy of the cars. What does that mean? I would much rather as a railroad operator, not have a segregated car because now I might have to have two cars, I'm gonna have seats that are wasted. So the capitalist understanding is that services are fungible, but human beings are not fungible. This is a very important distinction. Guess what happened? The states then came in and mandated that the cars be segregated because there was so much social tension. And the capitalists, the quote unquote evil capitalists had to do had to impose a type two discrimination when from an incentive structure, they had no desire to do so. Take another example. In south africa okay where there's a a tremendous amount of type 2 discrimination even on the books and the laws i think that started to to reverse course in recent years but the construction industry hired much more black workers and the quota might have been zero i don't know then by the laws they were allowed to hire and the reason was they wanted access to labor so here's a classic example where market pressure and when there is when there is demand from the market it is desirable for the market to be able to select who the participants are. In other words, situations of high demand from the employers create more equitable circumstances because I can't afford to discriminate in those circumstances. I just need to hire whoever's qualified for the job. Let's give another example. And this is, I think, uh, Sowell quotes Stiglitz, right? Who is, in, again, you know, one of, the, one of the great, at least he's a mainstream economist, one of the great mainstream economists. And he said, uh, right around, I think, the period of the 1940s, when minimum wages started to rise, there was so much inflation that the effective minimum wage was zero. And during that period, we see black and white teenage unemployment at the same exact rates. As the war on poverty starts to kick in, as the minimum wage starts to go up, as the 60s kick in, guess what's happened? Exactly the opposite of what Mochists and tell, Marxists tell you should happen. Exactly the opposite is that disparities go up. They go way, way, way up. And the reason is a higher minimum wage creates a surplus of workers and now employers can hide their type two discrimination all day long and they're not under any market forces to hire the only qualified individual. And another reason, I I wanna quickly explain why we can have disparate statistics by race, but it has nothing to do with race. Different populations, let's say Mexican-Americans, African-Americans, Japanese-Americans have different average ages. And so you will see in the job statistics, wait, African-Americans were rejected at a higher rate than white Americans, but that's because they, they may have more young people applying because they have more young people. So we need to be very, very careful that we don't naively look at the statistics and say like, oh, just because there's some kind of sorting or some kind of order here, it must be the result of discrimination. And then that we don't shoot ourselves in the foot at the policy level and assume type two discrimination and then produce more of the same
0: brilliantly said um you know again on the, the the point of something that's complicated versus a complex system i always love that telebian uh, distinction between the cat and the washing machine you know the washing machine is complicated right. but you can trace the arrows of causality through it you know it's it's a relatively simple machine compared to the cat the cat is a biological organism there's all types of feedback occurring that you just can't predict what what trying to solve one particular problem in a cat the you can't predict the unintended consequences necessarily um i heard this quote recently that biology is way more complicated than physics and i think that's that's pretty interesting you know like biology's complex system obviously the economy which is a huge aggregate of individual biologies is even more complicated i I would argue even more complicated than any individual organism um, yet we have this weird notion somehow that we can steer the economy with these mechanical levers. You know, we're, we're still built on this whole mechanical worldview and applying it to the the most complex system in the world, which is the global economy. Clearly that doesn't work. And, um, you know, if to the point on markets where you, you described like, uh, the train operators that didn't want to segregate their passengers. I love this point too, that Mises makes that in free markets. The consumer is sovereign, right? That no one else, just the, the individual that's buying or selling. They will typically buying, right? They're indicating to producers what to produce. They're actually the sovereign actor in the whole thing. And consumers are blind to race, sex, religion, right? They just want high quality products at a that's fair right. price, right? It's just quality and quantity of product. Give
1: me a seat. Give me a widget. Like it's such a simple transaction, and in fact, the number of the price takes race completely out of, takes gender, yes. or takes religion completely out of the picture.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's it's really all that matters, right? It's product quality and quantity, and then that signal into the marketplace for producers is they're just going to do whatever is necessary to produce a high quality product at a fair price. So that means they don't. There's no. There will be. There would be discrimination only based on merit in a purely free market. Right. I mean, I'm not not perfectly, but you'd be as close to that situation as possible. I think the, the less government interference, the further away you get from type two discrimination, the more you get to uh, the sovereignty of the consumer and its effects on uh, social organization.
1: Let's, let's get into a second this, the costs that are imposed. And again, Seoul is trying to help Americans and citizens of the world to think in complex ways. That's literally his job is to introduce complex thinking. Why? Because again, this goes back to something we talked on in the first episode. Henry Hazlitt's observation, economics is the study of hidden consequences. And Sowell is trying to get people to think in more subtle ways and think about costs. And I want to give an example. If we just declare a type two discrimination without thinking economically, what does that mean? Wait a minute. If I, as an employer, now discriminate against a group of people, I'm going to have access to less labor. And in this way, the market is kind of a self-leveling mechanism. And without touching this statistic, let's just touch upon the claim. If it were, and you know, this is a statistic that woke us love, is that females get paid on average 75 cents for every dollar that a man gets paid. And there are lots of statistical problems with this claim that we can kind of dig into later. But if that claim were true, the market would provide a self-leveling mechanism that would instantly create job create demand for female labor because corporations be like wait i can instantly run at a 25 percent profit margin just by hiring females and then that system would self-level because every corporation would want to so these claims just don't even stand a tiny tiny bit of scrutiny and thought and i want to give one more example because i think these examples are really important because they will prevent us from doing in the future things that haven't worked in the past And I think right around the 60s, the 1960s, there was a study that said the poor pay more, okay? And what it showed is that in disadvantaged neighborhoods or in lower socioeconomic strata, the prices were higher, okay? So now the the wokest response to that is to become outraged and tell corporations that, oh, how dare you gouge the poor people? This is what the Elizabeth Warrens of of the world will say. Now, the first irony is that The same people who will make this claim wouldn't be caught dead. They would never walk in that neighborhood either during the day or at night. And what is this to show is that their individual discrimination, they will not even set foot in that neighborhood, but they want to set the rules for that neighborhood and the rules for corporations in that neighborhood. Now, let's dig into this for a second. So if we naively say the cause of these higher prices is type two discrimination, we are going to mandate that the pricing structure must be the same nationally. Let's you and I, instead of giving the answer, let's work out why the prices are higher and what is going to happen if the government says, okay, we're going to put a cap on prices. Let's, Let's talk about that. So any theories as to why prices are higher in poorer neighborhoods?
0: I'm going to abstain from this because I read the book.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. Well, so like, okay, but let's let's play with this a little bit. So what are things that could be true? So first of all, these might be a potentially more remote areas. So it might not have the distribution of New York City. So there might be costs of getting the, the product out. And the killer thing is that many of these neighborhoods are high crime neighborhoods. So the corporations are just doing the rational thing and trying to cover their inventory loss okay and here again you can see people do not respond to laws they respond to incentives in this in the city of san francisco right where i come from and i've worked for i've worked in they will not prosecute crimes under $800 and people will just walk in and you know like in plain view of the police and citizens grab $799 of stuff put it in a bag and walk out the door okay so the first observation here is that the actual cause of higher prices is the theft that occurs. And the corporations need to be able to make ends meet. They need to be able to charge a higher price so that they can recover the inventory loss. Now watch this. If the government comes in and says, let's fix the prices, let's make sure that all prices are the same nationally. Sounds very equitable, doesn't? it? You know what happens? The stores in those lower socioeconomic strata, the poor neighborhoods close. And it's just like the statement, the real minimum wage is zero. And we can raise the minimum wage, as an example, all day long to try and give people more equitable outcomes. What you're doing is scaling down hours and making type two discrimination a lot cheaper. So this is a classic example. Another example, during the response to the global pandemic, the government said, hey, we're really concerned about marginalized people and communities. This is what they said. And as a result, we're gonna declare that only essential jobs can work so that people don't get sick and die from an infection. What actually happened is, they disproportionately hurt people who were just on the edge and just barely lifting themselves out of poverty by declaring certain jobs essential. They could, they were just starting to right themselves and the government made working illegal for them, all in the name of trying to defend the invincible fallacy. And so I just want to go back to this idea of the poor pay more and show, so because the government is assuming type two discrimination and they have a very weak economic model and a weak understanding of hidden economic consequences, they go in and employ price fixing the actual rational policy choice would be to be wait a minute we need more policing in this area and that will allow prices to come down and that will give everybody what they want and here again we can see the wokesist got the got things exactly wrong because what they said is no policing is racist let's have less policing and what's happening crime is shooting up and they're destroying all of the neighborhoods that they claimed to want to help with no accountability whatsoever. Where where are these people being held accountable now for the increase for the surge in crime? And here again, this goes back to there there could be demographic differences. It doesn't have to have anything to do with race, right? So as an example, if we look at speeding violations and we see, hey, more African-Americans than white people are getting speed vi- speeding violations, it's a younger population, younger people are more likely to, sp- to speed, <laughs> nothing to do with race. So it's just amazing to me how all these things are counterintuitive, but I think where we want to help the audience is just to put these glasses, these x-ray glasses on. And Sol makes this point, all of the erudition in the world will not help you if you don't stop and think about the information that you receive. And so this is really where I I hope our podcast can help, is to help people x-ray a little bit the headlines and look behind the economic dynamics. And the sad thing is politicians pay no cost for being wrong. And they have every incentive to cry discrimination because it gives them power. And I I want everyone who can hear this podcast to understand that wokists are desperate for power and the political left, all statists, not just left, left and right, are desperate for power. And they use the invincible fallacy to grab more power. They don't actually have sympathy for marginalized communities or disadvantaged minorities or people were disadvantaged because if they were, they would make it about standard of living and not about race and not about gender. And this is just transparently, to me at least, a plea for power. They don't have sympathy or empathy for these quote unquote minorities. They want power to reform society in the image of their own minds and no accountability whatsoever to that reformation. And it's deeply disturbing.
0: Deeply disturbing indeed and um, great. Great job laying that out there. Uh, this, I, I'm glad you brought up unemployment because that's the that's what came up for me too, this self-sorting or this self-leveling process of unemployment. This gets, again, I think this is the third time I've brought up Mises this time in this episode, but that's what he said. You want to eliminate institutional unemployment, then remove the minimum wage. That's the only way to do it, right? to let the market clear at the intersection of supply and demand. Do not Introduce an arbitrary and compulsory rate at which labor must be compensated; otherwise, you're going to have um, you're going to have unemployment from it as as an institutional cause rather than a uh, a business cycle cause. And on this point of the poor paying more, you know, maybe it's more policing, perhaps, because I did get a little stuck on this with, oh, well, isn't that indicating the need for more government government intervention? But it could just be better security, right? It could be barred windows or security features on the store or, you know, 24 by 7 lighting, something like that. Yeah. Um, But the knee jerk reaction, as you said, if you're only thinking one order deep is if there's a problem in the marketplace or there's a problem with people paying higher prices in mountainous regions or high crime uh, jurisdictions is to try to control, quote unquote, control the market right? Tell the market what to do instead of listening to the market, which makes it not a market at that point. It's You're you're pushing it away. You're literally, you're moving away from consumer sovereignty, right? Towards government control. That's what the interference is itself, right? It's taxes taken in and then expended on trying to um, change these outcomes in some arbitrary way But that's actually distorting the the discovery process in the marketplace itself. So in some very fundamental sense, this knee-jerk reaction goes against freedom, obviously, right? It's a new policy. It's a new law. It's a new piece of legislation, a new rule you must follow. And that movement away from freedom seems to also move us away from truth, if you consider like accurate prices to be truthful or the type one, a discrimination where you're looking at the individual and judging the individual based on his individual or her individual merits and history and all these other things, you move to a type one B, right? Which is the group. So you're, you're, this movement away from freedom is associated or corresponds to a movement towards lower resolution. Yes. Depictions of reality, I guess you could say. And man, if that like, it's so, if that doesn't get your head spinning, I don't really don't know what will it's we're we're blinding ourselves, right? In our attempt to try and get the market to do a thing that we want it to do, we cause it to do something. We cause it to create a damaging outcome, I guess you would say. So this, this correspondence of freedom and truth just seems extremely important to me.
1: It is, and and it goes back all the way. So, I'm not at all surprised that you're bringing up Mises and also complex systems. And and some of our early work, we've tried to establish the relationship between Mises and complex systems. But I think, without ever calling himself an Austrian economist, Sol is kind of like the a mainstream to the extent that conservative economics can be mainstream purveyor of the Austrian way of thinking. And what Mises had the intuition for, but never actually stated was that there are negative consequences or externalities to interfering with complex systems, number one. The second thing which he explodes is that the idea, and, and Hayek really takes this and puts a very fine point on it, is that the central planners will always allege that capitalism is planless, okay? And then we show that capitalism is actually decentralized planning. The extended order takes into account a lot of local information and things that only individuals could possibly know. and and could never convey to a central authority. So this granularity, the more expensive we make information, to your point, like it's impossible, we literally make it illegal or make the cost infinite for getting type 1A information about an individual. And then the, the once that cost goes up, the information becomes very costly. And this, this creates so many interesting dynamics. And another example that Sowell gives is that when this charge of the invincible fallacy arises, uh, one thing which is very different, and we see this totally in modern day cancel mobs, we see this uh, totally uh, among the, the claims of leftists, Marxists, wokists, that then allegation is simple enough to establish your guilt. And Sowell gives two examples, one of which where the government had a discrimination lawsuit running against Sears Roebuck Company, and the lawsuit ran for like 15 or 20 years. It was eventually thrown out. And at no point did the Department of Justice have to produce even a single individual who claimed to have been discriminated against by sears Roebuck. They just applied the invincible fallacy. They looked at the outcomes and decided that what must be operating here is type two discrimination. And now here's the interesting thing. The government imposes a new and coarser set of costs. And I, and I wanna give some examples here. When employers know a lawsuit is a cost, nobody wants their, the name of their corporation dragged through the mud no one wants to pay all the legal fees for 10 years or 15 years or 20 years or however long it takes to litigate these cases, guess what they do? They just don't hire people who are in marginalized groups. But how do they get away with that? They move to areas that are racially homogenous. You can't make this stuff up. It's absolutely insane. So in other words, the only way to shield themselves from a lawsuit, right? Because again, the unenlightened wokest would say, well, if your business doesn't look like a random sample, you must be discriminating. And so what they do is say, okay, great, we're going to move to a place where a random sample will vindicate our, our employee role. I mean, it's, it's just crazy how all of these things fit together. And again, all the unintended consequences that are, that are created in that process.
0: I mean, literally crazy, right? You're actually disturbing, um, Relationship with the actual data of the world through these uh, attempted interventions, um, and yes, I'm really glad you introduced me to Sol. Actually, because he does bring this empirical aspect that's lacking from almost all the Austrian economic literature, which is much more founded on rationalism. You know, thought experiments. Uh, Mises uses a lot of imaginary constructions, for instance, to make his points, whereas. Soul brings in a lot of data and a lot of reasoning that um, from the empirical side of things just is is noticeably absent in Austrian Econ. Now, I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So, how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then, when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible, and then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare, using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then, if you have a Big Health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com Backslash breed love, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. I want to, we've thrown these, we've thrown these terms around a lot, discrimination 1A, 1B, and 2. I just want, because this took me a little bit of time to absorb it. I want to read this excerpt here where Sol describes them uh, for the audience. He writes that discrimination type one, which is basing decisions on empirical evidence has two variations. The ideal and more costly variation is seeking and paying the cost for information that would permit judging each individual as an individual, regardless of the group from which that individual comes. This we call discrimination type 1A. In other cases, where such information is too costly to be worth it, individuals may be judged by empirical evidence on the group that they are a part of. This can be called discrimination one B both variations are different from discrimination two, where the reason for treating individuals from different groups differently has no empirical basis, but is due to personal bias or aversion to members of particular groups. So um, again, that just kind of reiterating what those definitions are, as I think he will probably use them throughout the text here and again, just to echo that point that it's intervention, anything that's increasing the cost of obtaining information, right? Which a lot of these interventions do, you're actually, you're destroying the resolution through which you can see the world. (laughs) Like this hits me, I mean, I just feel like I'm being hit over the head here. It's like once you try to pass some coercive act to create some desired outcome, that is the point at which intention diverges from outcome, right? The intention and the ultimate outcome separate. And this seems to me, maybe this is the source of why every piece of government legislation is best defined as taking its title and inverting it. You just can't do it, right? You need freedom. You need, I guess, you could say maximal information throughput through these local actors that can't, you can't encapsulate that information, transmit it to a a central planning committee and then have them transmit a message back and then you act right when you go
1: like if you could it'll, imagine it'll stay that on, committee forever right yeah it, it's not possible so so the very important things to us individuals what does my daughter need to eat oh wait she is allergic to shellfish there's so many she needs to take this medication <laughs> no central planner could know that they're just gonna they're gonna look at an average they're gonna turn all those people into one number and say here, let's apply this policy, and it's gonna flunk spectacularly because it misses the subtlety and what you're calling this high-resolution information.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. And um as you said earlier, that politicians are aiming to keep power. This distortion seems to serve that in two ways. Like the first way is you're you have this reason for infinite more intervention, right? The, the invincible fallacy, I guess, demands infinite intervention because you can never, the fallacy always persists no matter what you do. And you have to intervene more and more and more, which creates more of the fallacy, so on and so forth. But it also seems that I guess the bad information also keeps people in more of an emotional fight or flight mode, So they're more likely to latch on to these political, you know, Mm. I don't know. That's racism is the problem rather than you know the intervention that pushed us from one A to one B to two. Um, just thinking out loud here. Love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: So there are competing costs in in any economy, and here's an interesting thing. So we've looked at we've said this a lot that people respond to incentives, not to laws. And an example was the Affordable Care Act. And so you either have to pay for insurance or you have to pay a fine. If the fine is cheaper than the insurance, then people will just pay the fine. And it wasn't, it wasn't that different in South Africa. There was a fine for hiring workers who happened to be of the wrong color, or I can go without labor for my job. And those two costs now end up competing against one another. And the individuals and in the corporations do the rational thing and choose the lowest cost. So in changing the cost structure, to your point, we're also changing the nature of the judgments that that governments and individuals. we're changing the nature of the economic actors and the decisions that they make. And I I wanna come up with some really interesting examples here. So the cost is, and and Thomas Sowell actually dedicates this book to Walter Williams. He said, to Walter Williams, who has labored in the same vineyard. And again, these are two conservative African-American economists who are trying very, very hard to debunk the invincible fallacy. And what I want, I guess the first point I want to make is that to a city, aggregate crime statistics, whether the homicide rate is 0.01% or 0.1%, makes no difference to those individuals. Excuse me, to the at the government level, but it makes a big difference to the individuals who lose their lives. And the cost of gathering, so this point that Sol is making is that no matter in any universe, gathering type 1A information is more expensive than type 1B information, is more expensive than type 2. And what is the reason for this? I have to take the time to investigate an individual. And I want to give some examples here. So if you see, if you're walking down the street at night, let's say it's 1130, you're on your way home from work, or you just went to pick up some food for the family, any number of things. If you see a shadowy hooded figure, I don't know the race, I don't know the gender of this person, on your side of the street, do you say, wait a minute, let me talk to this individual, give them the benefit of the doubt, see type 1A, like, let me get some 1A information, or do you just simply cross the street? And this is why there's a quote in this book, which is so apropos and really ties together. It really brings Hayek's insight to the rest of economics. And what Sol says is civilization is a thin crust over a volcano. What does that mean? In the course of human beings are several billion years of compounded evolution and a few thousand years of civilization, like which of those factors are gonna predominate? And we are unnecessarily naive about human nature and economic actors if we think that information is free and we can gather all this type 1A information. And I wanted to give an example. Sometimes false negatives are very, very, very expensive even though that requires discrimination. Let me give an example. 99.999% of human beings, if they see a large tiger are going to run or, or do they're going to take some action to defend themselves. And in the course of evolution, the human beings said, well, maybe this tiger is friendly. Let me be non-discriminatory towards this tiger, did not survive. And so in cases where encountering an individual that you don't know, encountering an animal that you don't know, encountering an environment that you don't know, gathering specific information about that individual, about that environment is prohibitively expensive. And in the course of survival, why does this involve Hayek? This is morality. This is intuition. This is things we do without reason. reason says or at least wokest reason says, well, let's treat every individual the same, but you don't have precise information about those individuals. You can't afford from a risk perspective to gather that information. And this is where the huge disconnect comes between what we say and what we do. And Sowell calls this revealed preference. And one of the things that, you know, as he kind of destroys this lie of statistic, like lies, damn lies, and statistics, he says that in the literature and in the statistical literature, If people do not take into account the effect of survivorship bias, number one, and what people say that they do versus what they actually do, that's revealed preference, you're missing economic reality entirely. And he gives a very startling example. The the southern states have a reputation for being pious, and their self-reported church attendance is some enormous number, and their actual church attendance is some much smaller number. So here again, it's not that easy. We can't just rely on what people say. Sometimes even having a conversation with a person is not an amount of information that you can gather. Therefore, I would much rather have, I don't want any discrimination. And all these discrimination types 1B and type two are both forms of collectivism. Nobody wants any discrimination. However, that is not practical. And I would much rather people apply rational type 1B discrimination, which is actually based on statistics and evidence then be told that they're not allowed to perform any form of discrimination because it will allow them to make better decisions. And I'll give you an example. Let's say you're hiring someone to be an airline pilot. Should we now, let's, let's assume, and I'm sure this is true, that the occurrence of alcoholism is higher in certain socioeconomic strata, certain demographics than others. If we now make background checks illegal and drug, let's say, uh, we make it, we make drug testing impossible, you can't ask people if they have a history of alcoholism, we just made the aviation industry much more dangerous for everybody who's going to get on a plane. Anyway, real world costs, real world, the individuals have skin in the game, individuals feel the cost of gathering information, and government is just up top somewhere with an incentive just to rabble rouse and say, wait a minute, there's discrimination. And the politicians never have to empirically connect their policies to the outcomes because four years later, when the consequences actually land, they're on to another another job. So I know there was a lot there, but I, I just really wanted to, this, this cost is on, when we think economically, we think in terms of cost. What is the cost to the discriminator? What is the cost to the individual who's being discriminated against? What is the cost to the person of gathering type of information and not always practical?
0: Yeah, a lot of brilliant points you made there. And, um, you know, incentives, people following incentives, not laws. That is something very fundamental to human action, right? It, It just sort of undermines this whole notion of passing policy or legislation that creates an outcome. It's like that won't work because what you're saying is, you're creating a threat, right? A veiled threat, do this or else. And sure, there's a disincentive quality to that, but people are actually going to follow what they're incentivized to follow. So it is, if anything, the legislation itself would be a cost. It's a transaction cost, right? It's a risk associated with whatever the activity is. And But it's ultimately those the input cost that really guide people, right? What is what's the cost of obtaining specific versus non-specific information, and they'll sort of act accordingly. And I'm just reminded here of how terrible central banking must actually be, because it's actually distorting the metric or the, I guess, the denominator by which we uh, discriminate among these various input costs, right? The actual injection of artificial liquidity into a marketplace is going to disturb market actor judgment about what when prices change, you just don't know if that's the market talking to you or it's policy talking to you. So it breeds this kind of confusing environment. And as the cost of specific, let's say the cost of obtaining specific information increases, you're then inducing people to rely on heuristics, right? Because- Which is 1B. Which is one Heuristics
1: are type 1B for the most part. Yes. And it's not an antip- antipathy towards any individual group. It's like, hey, here's what I statistically know. Let me give you an example. This is a great example of, of type 1B discrimination. Ha- have you ever rented a car?
0: Yes. And I'm currently renting one, actually.
1: Okay. So when you sign the contracts, I remember as an 18-year-old kid, I couldn't rent a car. And I was I was distraught about this. And this is very instructive wise. So you have to be, I believe, 25 in most states, maybe even in all states nationally to rent a car. What is is the reason? So we look at the statistics or we look at the laws on the book. We could call this structural discrimination. And the reason is a very good type 1B reason is that people between the, the age that they are legal to drive, 16, some states, 18 others to 25 are at a much, much higher risk rate. And so the insurance companies are just doing the rational thing, and they're saying, we're going to preclude this group of individuals who are very high risk and potentially won't even be able to cover the loss of the car, right? I guess there's insurance and other factors that play into that. So that's a really good example of where type 1B discrimination using information about a group has nothing to do with race, nothing to do with gender, nothing to do with any protected class, but it gives the corporation some more fine-grained information with which that they can make policy decisions. And they produce effectively the outcome that they want to produce, which is we have a lower accident rate. And guess what? That means lower prices for everybody who wants to rent a car.
0: Yeah, that's it's a, it's a great example. That's um, a great example. I, so then would we be better served by taking all of the effort and expenditure we put into passing this legislation, these various forms of legislation that are intended to change outcomes if we just instead which i guess maybe the market does this by itself actually you just focus on lowering the cost of obtaining information or lowering Mm. transaction cost then it's just let it's reducing the frictions that enable market processes to kind of resolve these problems so um you know i'm just thinking for instance if you had a I don't know some type of database that instead of saying that no um, people can drive cars can rent cars between the ages of sixteen and twenty five. maybe if there was a database that some provider um, let's say some tech company provided, I don't know if this would be government, non government, whatever, that just gave a super granular, you know, easy access history of driver. History at an on an individual basis, wouldn't that we could still have that same outcome, right? We'd have a lower accident rate, but lower, presumably even lower prices because you'd have more yeah. demand. Um, I guess producers would be satisfied, they'd be serving a larger market. So presumably economies of scale would make renting a car cheaper for everyone if you admitted a few of these excluded 16 to 25 year olds. But all that whole thing is premised on lowering the cost of information and getting from a 1B discrimination to a 1A.
1: Well, wow, there's so much to, to unpack here. I guess the first point is that that is why the internet is kind of a triumph in decentralized information. And that leads to better local decisions. Because the first, the divine right of kings, and then in some sense, the, the divine right of states was always predicated on the idea, and this is behind the fatal conceit, all order comes from rational central planning, that these organizations had more information than any individual could possibly have. And that turns out to not be true in the age of the internet. And now it's actually very ironic. Now you see corporations, the ghouls of the world, they do want to actually police the information window and control, you know, which information is it? What is the official narrative story? And, you know, they have to embarrassingly, they never own up to this. Reverse course so many different times. And a really good example, we, you've had him on the podcast. So Balaji Srinivasan, long before the pandemic really became a thing, was talking about, forbidden word, was talking about COVID-19 on Twitter. And the realization I had is that information is kind of like a bell curve. And this is the commonly accepted information. There's early false, there's minority false information and minority true information no algorithm can know ahead of time which part of the tail we're operating in. You have to just let the information system be free because for every Baljee Srinivasan, there might be 10 or 20 people who don't know anything about virology or anything about risk management. And you, so what, Google, what the Googles of the world are doing by trying to have an official narrative is they're chopping the tails off the inst- information distribution. And it means that they are, to some extent, preventing misinformation, but they're also destroying the early warning system that that we have. And so that's a good example of an information market and how it can inform human action. And then to this point, so this is actually a really good case study. Let's go back to type 1B discrimination. You have to be 25 years or older to rent a car. The question for the audience really is what is the cost of maintaining that database? And is it greater than just saying, we're not going to have anybody between the ages of 16 and 25 or whatever the age range is rent a car. So that is really the question. That is the cost that is important. And you know, we would like that. That would be much more fair. Like, but what are they going to do? Like have another driver's test? Like you already went through, like, how are we going to do that? How are we going to perform that assessment? Right. So that we don't have to use a heuristic of your capabilities. And there's a second cost. I guarantee if they did that, they would be sued for discrimination. Think about it, right? They, the, the government would most likely bring a lawsuit against them and say, hey, we noticed that there's, you know, there's disparities, and could be for a variety of reasons which have nothing to do with race or gender and no active type two discrimination. So there, that's this is why economic thinking is so interesting and how it can help us to make and advocate for better policies. And there are a lot of well-meaning people out here who don't realize, for instance, that advocating, you know, they see on the voting ballot, hey, should we raise, <laughs> we'll literally say, should the minimum wage be raised from 1050 to 1950. or what, And a well-meaning individual will be like, man, that's great. Like, I want to help all the working class people around me, not realizing what you're actually doing is unemploying people and preventing them from getting their first job. And and Sowell gives this great statistic. He says, the disparity in incomes, let's say between African-Americans and white Americans cannot be due solely to race. And he's very careful that to tease out causation versus correlation and wokists are very uncareful with that they wherever they see correlation they assume that the causation or type 2 discrimination is, is the result he says as african americans get older they earn more so it can't the the income disparities can't be due to race because you don't change your race as you get older what you're doing is gaining experience and so another one of the consequences of raising them on wages i will now deprive all these young people whose labor isn't worth the new minimum wage. Therefore, no rational employer would hire them. I will now deprive them of their first jobs. That's what you're doing when you raise the minimum wage, meaning they will never enter the job market. They will never be, and they will never gain the experience they need for the next hire job. It's it's incredibly painful and, and counterintuitive and that we're stuck in this loop. And, and Sowell really traces this to a, a shift in consciousness that happened in the 1960s. So he talks about a book I haven't read, but it's come across my radar many times. Bill Gates recommended it soul speaks very highly. It's called it's the Battle angels of our nature. It's a Steven Pinker book. And, and one of the observations that soul makes is that the assumption, the invincible fallacy really be, a, began to creep in, in the 1960s. And, and here's another way of stating the invincible fallacy is that people are depraved because they are deprived. People are depraved because they are deprived. And in the sixties, as what I called the prior episode, toxic femininity, and I'll design that it's this idea of let's include everybody, let's guess what happened? Single motherhood shot up through the roof. Because we destroyed the self-sorting of people. Oh, you don't need a dad. You can have you, you can have a single mom, like women can do everything on their own. Which may or may not be true. I'm taking no position. I'm just observing that these statistics change. Single motherhood shot up through the roof. The murder rate, which had been declining for decades, shot up through the roof in the 60s. Sexually transmitted diseases. Like so all these things, this kind of unsorting of civilization. Literally, the metrics of civilization got worse, as we said, we're going to go in and actively unsort people and pretend that everything needs to be randomly sorted. By the, by any measure that should matter to government, civilization became less safe and less civil to live in. And the empirical destruction of this idea that people are deprived or people are depraved because they're deprived happened, you know, Seoul, I think, looks at England at a time when and you can barely carry a kitchen knife in London right now. It is so immensely repressive uh, from a government, from a law standpoint. You can barely carry a kitchen knife. It has to be less than, I don't know, so many inches because they have such a violence problem. And Show shows at a time in English history when, you could, when anybody could just walk into a store and buy a shotgun, the murder rate was much lower. So the question now is what have we done? All these policies that, that fly in under the banner of diversity and inclusion, actually are depriving people of more subtle forms of information that actually make our communities safer and make, again, the poorest community safer. And so I guess I'm beside myself because every time I make a point, we come back to this issue that laws have the opposite consequence of, 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 the intended, of the intention of the law. And so I was very careful to tease out intentions and outcomes. And I think that partially explains the fact that people respond to incentives and not laws explains your question. It kind of starts to answer your question. That's why the we these laws have so many unpredictable outcomes because it's not the law people are, are paying attention to. We're perverting, this is it. The incentive structure for people to take rational economic actions is perverted. And as a result, we get this unsorting. And, you know, I mean, it's crazy to me for murder rates to go up. And I, I stated this earlier, but it bears repeating, the disparity between races, between racial outcomes, between incomes in America went up starting in the 60s. And that means in the, so prior to the civil rights era, prior to civil rights era, African-Americans were doing better and had a much better trend. And same thing prior to the war on poverty, all these stated goals of trying to help people. That's another great example of a perverse incentive. We say, okay, this group of people is disadvantaged. Let us now give them a special set of government incentives, right? And guess what? That incentivizes single motherhood. You get more money per child if you're a single mother. and it's just it's 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 absolutely destructive to my mind, and it's poisonous, and it's deeply sad that these programs continue and continue to get funded and are producing worse and worse outcomes for the communities that where they're supposed to help.
0: Yeah, it's self-defeating in multiple ways. Um, and I, you know, I guess again, just to like take this back to sort of the title of the book. Discrimination, right? You say that word today, it has an inherently negative connotation. And that's not, I mean, discrimination is not a bad thing. It is essential for action, right? Anything you're doing, any course of action you're taking, you're discriminating against all the other possible courses of that's action right. in the world. So it is, it's, it's, ba- it's inexorably bound to action itself. And um, this, I, I love this quote you you gave me people are depraved because they are deprived i hope i said that the right that, direction
1: yes that, and it's from west side story and it is the attitude and this is what Sowell shows is that the worsening of let's say murder statistics is because of this mistaken attitude that the reason that people have it's again the invincible fallacy the reason people are having Poorer outcomes is that they or the reason that they are are committing actions which are undesirable from a social perspective is because they have less. But it's simply not true. And one more empirical example that Sowell gives he shows in the literature, and then you know, starting in the sixties, is that every time there has been so there are have been a variety of government programs which have taken people out of poorer communities and integrated them into higher socioeconomic strata. Educational outcomes zero. Economic outcomes, zero. So this forcible unsorting of people doesn't actually even help the people that it's trying to help. And here's the amazing thing. The strongest resistance for, for bringing people from, from different socioeconomic strata into higher economic strata comes from the people from the disadvantaged groups. And I, and I, and I want to give an example. So uh, this happened in, uh, so, and to be clear, I, I just want to touch up this point on discrimination type 1A, type 1A, type 1B discrimination, perfectly rational. 1A is highly desirable. It's individualism. Type 2 discrimination, totally undesirable. So one of the things that Seoul shows is that the African-American communities where people were taken out of the projects, other African-Americans and placed in communities which were relatively more successful, they resisted the policy the most and the most violently. And the reason was so it cannot be due to racism. The reason was they understood that people from the projects, as an example, are coming from a different culture, and they complained about what are the habits of these individuals. Nothing to do with race. They're going to stay up late. They're not going to work. They're going to get drunk. They're they're going to play loud music, and they're they're may, they may. Let's see. What's another example? Uh, they're going to be unruly and unemployed. And they felt this is an amazing example of where the government totally failed to account for the. The feelings of people that it pretends to want to protect, they felt that they were being disrespected and that their lot in life would be worsened because of this forcible unsorting of people. And you can show this empirically. This is actually really interesting. So another statistic from the book. In Chicago, in the 19th century, African-Americans and white Americans had the same murder rates. And I think economically there was like some pretty good parity there. This is in the 19th century, middle of the 19th century. Now, what changed? African-Americans started to leave the postbellum South and they were then appeared in the north in northern cities like Chicago in greater numbers, and there wasn't enough time to assimilate them culturally. And guess what? During that period and running all the way up, I think, to the 60s, the, the African-American murder rate uniquely went from th- something three, it, it went from the same as the murder rate in the white community to 13 times. And you can see here, this has nothing to do with race. So there's all kinds of, preceding the era of civil rights, preceding even the the, uh, the Civil War, there were examples where we had what everybody wants. We had equality because we didn't forcibly unsort people and bring people in from other locations. And I want to talk about Dunbar High School, but let me let you let you jump in there.
0: Well, it's just a really, it's a great quote. You know, people are depraved because they are deprived. So the, the implication that, Depraved, I think, is something like morally wicked, right? Taking immoral action. Yes. Deprived would be you're you're poor, you're impoverished, you're destitute, something like that. Um, and I, I experienced this actually when I went to public school, uh, middle school and high school, and we had this uh, weird policy thing where they would, you know, take African American kids from thirty minutes away, and they would bust them into our school, and at the same time they were busing white kids out of our school into these other districts, you know, 30 minutes away that were more predominantly African-American. And I can tell you just within the cultural experience within the school was just divisiveness, right? You had these two groups that don't really want to be there. They don't know why they're there. And, you know, every day at the gym and the lunchroom, it was largely, you know, separated. And I, I don't know, yeah, I can, I guess, see the intention again, if you're only thinking one level deep, that oh you know there's this segregation has occurred in this community we need to fix that but you can't legislate cultural assimilation you can't force this process right people especially when it comes to community it has to be voluntary obviously so you can't just force people into community um so yeah i i don't not a lot to say there just um Maybe I want to talk about unsorting. The, sorry, last thing. Governments then looking at these worlds through statistics of some kind, right? Some statistical model, and and identifying a quote unquote problem, and then they're trying to forcibly unsort, right? Whatever the sort is, and they don't think the sort is correct. They want to unsort, resort, but it's based yeah. on a lower resolution depiction of reality, right? They're not analyzing at the individual level; they're looking at the group. Statistics or whatever it may be.
1: It's based on the invincible fallacy. And we, we touched a little bit on the last episode. It, it's such a stark and painful example that I want to repeat it. And so Dunbar High School, 80 years of African American achievements, sending African Americans to the to the best schools in the country, sending students to university at a higher rate than, than the corresponding white high schools amazing set of achievements and so Amherst, Harvard, like, you know, just list after list of achievement. Okay, once Brown versus Board of Education came down and the decision was made, I think it was Chief Justice Warren at the time, was that separate facilities cannot be equal. It's just so painful, it kills me. Uh, so what happened is, so Dunbar has is outperforming by every metric and has been for 80 years. It's an all black high school, I wanna be very clear, I believe in the state of New York. And after Brown versus Board of Education, their achievements disappear, and and they regress to the mean. What is the cause of that? It wasn't about race. The parents and the school wanted to be able to self-sort for individuals who wanted to be in school, who wanted to be in school. And when we forcibly unsort these environments, one person who doesn't want to be there can destroy the classroom experience for 29 other individuals. And so that is a case. This is the way that so, so Don Barr was using 1A and 1B discrimination to sort the individuals. Do you really want to be in school? Do you have an aptitude for this? It had nothing to do with race. It was about what are the capabilities, intents of those individuals and to some extent the parents. Like the support of the parents is really important, in all of this. They were told by the federal government, you cannot use type 1A, you cannot use type 1B discrimination. You must accept individuals from this arbitrary, well, I guess it's not arbitrary, but from the local geographic area and their achievements and the achievements of the the African-American community were destroyed by mandate. And so what is the issue here? So so the common common thread here is that if we assume type 2 discrimination and take policy actions as if type 2 discrimination is what is operant, and, and then in the process, make 1A and 1B discrimination impossible. This is why soul has type 1 and type 2, because it's the same word. In one case, it's good. Or in two cases, it's good. And in one case, it's very bad and totally undesirable. So that is it. That is really the tragedy of, of this whole exercise, that when we assume the invincible fallacy and say, oh, this must be due to type 2 discrimination, we destroy the ability of individuals to, to Perform type 1A and type 1B discrimination. And then guess what? We literally, we literally level, raise R-A-Z-E, the achievements of the communities that we're trying to help. Man. It, that I really felt a visceral pain. And imagine Thomas Sowell's pain being an African American who, against all odds, you know, goes to the University of Chicago, now has a residency. He's now at Stanford. I think he came out of Harvard. And seeing that African American students who are doing extraordinarily well in an all African American school are now deprived of that ability as a result of the Supreme Court decision. Oh, now go ahead, please. I want to take the opposite side of this. I, I want to, so so the status will say, well, we would still have segregated schools if the Supreme Court had you know handed down this law and we needed to forcibly integrate. And I think so, let's let's state which I think the common ground is for everybody. There should be no structural discrimination on the books. What does that mean? There should be no law that actually discriminates on the basis of gender, religion, or, or any, any of these incidental race, any of these incidental factors. And guess what the wokists end up doing? They do exactly the opposite. They put structural reverse discrimination on the books, or they make type 1A and type one B discrimination illegal. And then we get either worse outcomes or actual discrimination type two, as we've shown with the market distortions in the past, the real minimum wage is zero. And so again, the high ground is, you know, should we be integrated as a nation? Should everyone have access to the same opportunities 100%? But the way that we do that is we make it possible for individuals to self-sort. This is the big thing. Dunbar was totally self-sorting. It was all about the parents in the community and who they wanted in that school. And the people who ran the school, the parents, the kids, they all had skin in the game. And then they got a piece of paper from on high, which said, no, we're going to bust these kids into your school, whether you like it or not. And then their results were completely wrecked. So what is the nuance? The nuance is individuals have precise information by which they can self-sort, number one. And we need to make sure there's no structural discrimination on the books. And the way to do that is not the opposite, like you don't institute reverse discrimination, which is, again, this is what woke have said we should do, and I'll just give you one absurd example. Whether or not you believe in the mask mandate is, is irrelevant, but there were certain cities that said, well, if you're African American, you don't have to wear a mask. Like, what, what, what is this? Like, again, they are trying to help. But there's no consistency, there's no matter of principle behind what they do, and they don't respect the ability of individuals to self-sort and make rational decisions based on information that those individuals have and the collective doesn't.
0: Yeah, it's quite a wallop to the head when you really stop to analyze it this way. Um, And again, just to reiterate this point, we're using the term self-sorting here, but I think it's pretty much interchangeable with self-organization. Mm-hmm. which, you know, the last, the original conversation we had was on your written work that that dived into the detail details of that. Nature, right? Organisms are self-organizing, right? To, to try and go against that is to really fight the tide of nature in some way. And so, you know, in my view, it's the primary policy should typically be no policy, right? You want people to just voluntarily, consensually figure it out. And where there's some sticking point, Perhaps then you need uh, some course of measure or some law or some rule or some penalty, perhaps. but only it's almost like a measure of last resort. Um,
1: well, it shouldn't be necessary if we respect the rights of individuals. So, in other words, the state should never enforce any kind of preferential discrimination if we respect the rights of individuals to self sort everything should just work out and i want to give some really interesting examples that destroy the idea that self-sorting is about race it's just a preference that people have one thing we talked about on the prior episode is that if people have even the slightest preference for living next to their relatives they, you may get what looks like a massively segregated map. And it's just because of the instability, the butterfly effect of, oh, I want to live with my family. It just so happens that my family is a similar race. And then you get these clusters of people. A tiny, again, this is one of Seoul's biggest points. a tiny difference in preference or in prerequisites for success can lead to an enormous difference in outcome. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with type two discrimination. And two examples I want to give is So Sowell goes through and he looks at the marriage statistics of, first of all, America, the great melting pot. This is what wokists ostensibly want is for all people to mix. I love this idea freely and by association. And he goes through the marriage statistics for, let's say, people in little Italy, people in little Japan. So living in the United States not only did they overwhelmingly marry Japanese, marry other Japanese, Italians, marry other Italians, they were most likely, when they first settled in this country, to marry people from the same town in Italy, the same town, like people from Okinawa were marrying people from Okinawa here in the United States. What is that? That is self-sorting in action. And if we cease our obsession with, with skin color, how much melanin people have, and and I think the, I, I keep using this term, but wokists are deeply obsessed with this, and they, think ironically and very much in line with the invincible fallacy that the amount of melanin that you have in your skin is like the single most defining important defining characteristic about you and they want to make every law and every intention and every cultural mandate based on these on these principles but again so people were self-selecting self-organizing for one another based on some heuristics that we don't know and we don't need to know and here's what i'm trying to say even if you took non-African-American communities, you took white communities, you took uh, Asian communities, they're highly organized and highly sorted. And you will see clusters of people from Okinawa, clusters of people from Sicily, because they are self-organizing. And again, it has nothing to do with race. It has to do with their individual preferences, one for another, and how they choose to organize themselves.
0: So well said and yeah, it's just occurring to me here that this focus on skin color or the amount of uh is it melatonin what's it, what is it the melanin yeah melanin, melanin. is melanin. Uh, how, how you right? the amount of melanin in someone's skin like it, we're we're just we keep describing here how if you only think one order deep and not second and third order right the domain of economics being the study of hidden consequences uh orders 2 and 3 You're only focused on level one. I mean, this is almost like the physical manifestation of that. If you're just focused on skin color, you're completely omitting all these other things that make that human individual and unique.
1: Thank you. And And, and so it's crazy and they end up espousing racist ideals. They say, once I know the race of a person, I know everything about them. And you know, what I like to say is that in, in every race, like as a silly example, Will Smith's kids are probably more privileged in some ways socioeconomically than many white kids. It has nothing to do with the race that people, we want to start thinking in terms of individuals or at least one B all these groups are slightly different. And and Sol makes a a further point here. And so well, let me go back. So this idea that race is the single most important defining characteristics of a person is shared both by extreme racists and wokeists. <laughs> They they both they both think that. It isn't, and that's deeply offensive. They both swallowed the invincible fallacy. And it literally tells you nothing about an individual. But individuals, based on their interests, based on their educational background, may choose to associate. That's a great thing about the internet. I don't know who I'm chatting with when I'm, you know, on Twitter. Like I, I pay no attention. We're we are people who are interested in a similar topic. And I think that's extraordinarily important. Another example of revealed preferences and the preferences of individuals. Sometimes self-sorting and self-organization has nothing to do with the employer, but can be blamed on the employer, and I want to give an example. The employer may be totally indifferent to whether or not a man or a woman can do the job, totally indifferent at the level of the employer, but men and women are not indifferent to one another, okay? And let me give you an example involving all people who happen to be Caucasian. I think right around the turn of the century when the United States started to get a lot of Irish immigrants, it was considered poisonous to hire Irish Protestants and Irish Catholics at the same company. Why? The employer didn't care. Like, can you drive rivets in a steel beam? Fantastic, you're hired. But the individuals weren't indifferent to one another. Another example from the military. So there's this controversy now is like, should women be allowed in special forces? I take no position on this. I'm not an expert in that subject. But what they've shown is that if you have a, a mixed gender group, and you know, there are some, like some, let's say there's one woman and six men as an example, or maybe the special force team, or even numbers, odd numbers, I don't know. And man is more likely to take time away from combat and pull a woman off the battlefield. So even if all of these individuals are equal and can meet the same physical fitness standard, they are not indifferent to one another. And this is the great irony of the Invincible Fallacy, is that assuming type two discrimination completely destroys the agency of the individual to make a choice about who they want to fraternize with, who they want to associate with, and, you know, I definitely think there's a lot that individuals have to learn from the concept of diversity and inclusion in that we need to learn how to evaluate people on their merits as opposed to what package they present themselves in. But what is evaluation of on merit? That's discrimination type 1A, which fantastic. Let's let's judge all of the individuals based on what they can do and and what their individual what, what the empirical facts are about that individual.
0: Yes, yeah, well said. Um, and it- you see i think you could just see this anywhere that you know there's a sexual polarity between men and women typically speaking broadly here right if you're you could consider i guess a gay man like feminine energy or masculine energy desire which side whatever that you tend to fall on one one side of the camp right you're either kind of more you're higher proportion masculine or higher proportion feminine but if you blend groups right that are that there're the special forces as an example, they're intended to be unified towards one purpose, which is the mission. But if you, you add one woman to that equation, if it's an all man group, well, those guys are going to be a little bit distracted or perhaps behave differently towards that woman. Now, maybe this can be trained out or something, but you're at least introducing an error that would not, not otherwise be there. So it's not about keep women out of the special forces. It's just like, do you want this, group of people to be as competent as possible towards accomplishing their mission. Well, then perhaps in some cases, knowing that
1: they're not indifferent to one another, it has nothing yes. to do with the fact that a woman can't do the same as men, or maybe we need all female teams and special forces. Exactly. I don't know. Exactly. But to pretend this is again, the point that civilization is a thin crust over a volcano because people are taking the intellectual posture. Well, it shouldn't matter what you have between your legs. I agree with them. Th- whether or not you're selected for a given job, that doesn't mean that individuals, you know, the thin crust over a volcano part is like, Sexual reproduction has a very long and powerful history. Now we still need standards of decency. Nobody should ever have to face any kind of harassment in the workplace. That's not under question. But that doesn't mean that the same way that Irish Protestants and Irish Catholics were self-sorted or the employer kind of had to make a division that we won't also have disparate outcomes that have nothing to do with discrimination.
0: Yes, and the back to Dunbar High School, that was a school where the consumers were sovereign, right? The people yes. that were in the school wanted to be in the school. They desired, there was a a consensual um, exchange ultimately brought them into that school.
1: We're all but, here for the same purpose. That that I They mean, were unified in purpose and it had nothing to do with Unified in race. purpose.
0: That's a great way to put it. But then the government intercedes with a, a an orthogonal purpose. It's so like, oh, there's too many people of one race in this group. We need to split it up. And that destroys their ability to achieve, right? It destroys merit. It destroys accomplishment as you've laid out. And so we kind of have a situation again here in the world where, well, what do we have now? We have critical race theory, which is structural yeah. Thank you for bringing that up.
1: I've been saying wokeism a lot, but CRT is probably a lot. Yeah, it, it is, it is, it is reverse, it's structural reverse discrimination and it greatly pains me. Uh, Wait till you see, I mean, there's some great videos online of parents just saying, hey, I'm never going to surrender to this, and you're not going to teach, and we're literally teaching kids to hate one another, and here's the thing that absolutely kills me about critical race theory. When you teach people that their results, this is a slightly, a slight variation on the invincible fallacy, and people are depraved because they're deprived. When you teach people that their outcomes and results are the result of other people's actions, you destroy their agency and you destroy their desire to improve themselves. And so what is left? If I believe, if I assimilate the doctrine that, okay, wait a minute, I'm, I'm disadvantaged because of the melanin in my skin and because certain people with a different amount of melanin have power over me, I have one option left and it is to destroy the system. Right. So so in other words, why would I participate? They are selling the idea that the system is fundamentally rotten. And I want to give a great empirical counterpoint to this, and it is by the great Frederick Douglass. It is what to a slave is the Fourth of July. Okay. And wokeists will observe that, like, okay, some of the founding fathers had slaves, African Americans were counted as three-fifths of a person in in certain in certain amendments. I consider those things evil, egregious, and inexcusable. But what Frederick Douglass makes the brilliant observation in what to a slave is the Fourth of July, he says, in the spirit of the Constitution, there is nothing about discrimination and race, nothing. And he says, I challenge people. And he was a great advocate of what he called both the the ballot box and the ammunition box. So he believed in the First Amendment, the Second Amendment. what What a great American. And he makes the observation that the principles of the Constitution are about the individual. And there's no structural elements of discrimination embedded or inherent. In the constitution and so all of all of that to say critical race theory flies in the face of the fundamentals of freedom which is that any individual who has the capability can participate and if we go around teaching children that this is not the case and that they have no control that's what we're teaching them we're teaching them they have no control over their outcomes what will they do they will either not participate or they will Participate in the burning of the city, right? the destruction of the system. and how can we blame them? We've given them a mental model in which they cannot succeed number one and and in which by death by virtue of their skin color, they are automatically friendly with one set of kids and an enemy with another set of kids. I mean, whew, it it hurts,
0: yeah, it's culturally and socioeconomically coercive. I'm sorry, corrosive, corrosive, yeah. not coercive. and um this you know, we're going to see similar results, right? Just like we saw at Dunbar High, you're going to have this structural discrimination or reverse discrimination, if you want to call it that. And it's going to, the costs will be borne by the lack of productivity, merit, achievement, all these, whatever the mission is, right? Whatever the mission of the organization is will suffer because of this structural discrimination that's superimposed on top of it. And I guess we could maybe take this a layer deeper and say that, as you're saying that the critical race theory or wokeism is ultimately selling this idea that injustice is structural, right? It's the whole thing is unjust. And so no wonder you're so destructive. What else would you do in that situation? You're born what, what would
1: I do? I've yeah. literally been taught that I, I receive a set of circumstances and that the, the world is out to get me. Why would I participate? What, why would I be interested in a job in science, technology, engineering, and medicine? Uh, and and it's crazy. But when you hear individuals who have real world experience in life, uh, like David Goggins, he's like a Army Ranger, former Navy SEAL. He said the people is just an observation he made. You can go find the Instagram post. He was asked, you know, what should we do about racism? And he said, the people who have always helped me, and this makes sense, and not the only people, but the people who have helped me to counter racism have been white people. Because they have a say in this. And that completely flies in the face of if you're white, you're inherently racist. And I, I hate to get into these very sensitive topics, but these are the kinds of fallacies and falsehoods that CRT teaches. And I want to I want to leave with kind of one one defining characteristic or point. And this is, you know, this goes into a, a second Thomas Sowell book, which is Black, Rednecks, and White Liberals. And what he shows is that the end of slavery worldwide, from slave markets in Brazil and Africa, started with the United States and Great Britain. And it was in large part a function of the nature of the constitution and the belief in individuals. And against, you know, at the point to the point of risking their own lives, instituting laws, taking over slave pirate ships, those two countries single-handedly ended slavery, global slavery. And none of the other countries were super interested and the reason is very clear. They did not have a document of principle that respected and understood the importance of the individual whereas the united states and to a lesser extent great britain did now we can go through the evils of those nations and, and those are undeniable but again so makes this point america is the only nation on earth to produce a structural disdain for racism and i think that's mm-hmm. because the markets uh, at least used to be are considerably freer and if you can do the job i want to hire you
0: yeah it's beautifully said and um this as you say here destroying individual agency right when you implant this idea that the whole thing is uh systemically unjust if you've destroyed individual agency you're just causing those people to run into the arms of central government right because they they have no or there's or no power the or like there's no power through participation it. to change the system so what will you do you'll run into the arms of the politician telling you all the free things they're going to give you to, to right the wrongs and fix the disparities. So it, it's this weird, it's this really perverse thing where like the original lie kind of compounds on itself. And it, I don't know, it just, I think it leads, it seems like a contributory factor to mass psychosis.
1: That is a great example too, because, so let's look at the consequences. So, uh, uh, so if I'm taught as an individual that I am largely powerless and my lot in life is the result of people who have type 2 discrimination antipathy towards me what am i going to do i'm not going to participate i'm not going to try and better myself because i can't because the system is structurally slanted against me and they will get exactly what they what they're trying to prevent is that people will check out of the system and like who who would who would try in a world like that
0: yeah and that's definitely what we want to avoid right <laughs> people being and, destructive and, is, and or not participating
1: This is uh, it's so great that Sol makes the connection between the invincible fallacy, Nazism and Marxism, or what he calls communism, because, Robert, it's the same ideas, the same terrible ideas over and over again, presenting themselves and people falling for it. And part of we have to use the scar tissue of history to become wiser as as voting individuals. And I hate this concept, but as people who participate in a larger political process, put it that way. And this is why freedom and self-sorting, I think, are the same thing, right? Because freedom is the capacity to make risks about your own individual, to to make a risk assessment on your own. That's exactly what Dunbar Heiskart was doing. It's like, hey, I think this this kid's serious. The parents are serious. Come on in and let's do a great job. Let's have a great set of, of outcomes together. And then the Invincible Fallacy is this poisonous idea that the government, having much less information than you do, needs to unsort you or provide very coarse-grained risk management, which takes very little information into consideration. So I I think maybe our maturation as as humanity and as – we're not political entities, but as beings who participate in society, right, or or in extended order, if you prefer – we have to become, we have to add this to our libraries, right? And that is the sense in which you can just look at the, the construction of the brain. That is the sense in which civilization is a thin crust over a volcano. You could say, you know, the cerebellum or wherever our, it's not that the higher thinking resides in a single area of the brain, but is, is, you know, some percentage. And then you've got all the reptilian brain, like, which is just running things, right? That's the Hayekian part of your brain in some sense. And so we need to assimilate these new routines for how we, we can be wise at the level of the extended order. And part of that is assimilating this lesson of history. And it's a very simple logic. And, and what I would challenge all the listeners to do is look for the fatal conceit, wherever there is order, it must have come from rational central planning and look for the eventual, invincible fallacy in the newspaper, right? So wherever there is sorting or wherever there is order, it must have been the result of discrimination. See how similar those things are. And they're going to, that's a whole new world out there because the politicians keep saying the same thing over and over again and they're doing it to seize power. They point to some discrimination which has, excuse me, they point to some disparity which has nothing to do, do to, with discrimination, pretend like it's discrimination, and then say, hey, give me the power. And and this is you know something we covered on last episode. I'll I'll turn it over to you in just a second is that the the statist view of the world, the interventionist view of the world always takes the frame. So the fatal conceit, the invincible fallacy always takes this frame that the past was a tragedy, the present is a crisis, and the future will be a paradise if you give me the power. And it's the same tired old logic again and again and again. And Penn and Teller, which which one is it? Who's the silent one? Let's see. Who's Who's the tall one? Who's the guy that actually talks?
0: I don't actually know. <laughs>
1: okay, I think Teller. I think Teller is the guy that talks. Anyway, he's like, I would love to see for a change once in a while for a politician to say, can we solve this with more freedom? And... They never say that, but we will. If we expand our vocabulary, if we understand Mises, we understand Seoul, and it's not we're trying to make these ideas adjustable. It doesn't require a PhD to understand any of these things. They're very simple ideas. If we add these observations to the Overton window, we will make better political decisions as an electorate. Again, I don't think my I don't think I as an individual am defined by the ability to vote, but we will make we will make better policy decisions, both at the community level. And at the national level and beyond, when we understand the subtleties of hidden consequences and we understand the subtleties of individual self-sorting, it all comes down to because individuals have the most skin in the game, allowing them to make the the decisions with the information that they have.
0: Very well said. Um, To establish a respect for the world, that it is more like a cat and less like a washing machine. (laughs) And we can't just replace little parts on the cat and not expect there to be some unintended consequences. Let's put a button on it here for today. Um, I'm really excited to go further in this book though because Thomas Sowell is quite he's (laughs) He
1: he is. And like, thank God for Thomas Sowell. I really feel like I woke up from a nightmare. So (laughs) in that, I knew I was different. I knew I believed in Liberty and i didn't i never felt like we should include this in the next episode i never felt like i had good arguments for why cuz yeah. like if you just say freedom that's not, mm-hmm. that's not very intelligent and and it got me one of the things well, let's take a note to pick up on this in the next episode the way that the legal apparatus and the apparatus of the state proceeds is that when the worst people among us let's just take a very controversial example a mass shooting happens And this is 0.01% of the population who are are depraved for one reason or another. It could be a mental health issue. I mean, who knows? There are a variety of factors that cause these things. And they say, you know what? We should use this highly aberrant individual as a standard for everybody's behavior. Since one individual cannot handle the freedom of owning a gun, Mm -hmm. let's just apply that to everybody. And that is the definition. There's a word for this, cacistocracy, rule by the worst people. Mm-hmm. That's what we do every single time. And that's the destruction of the resolution, the destruction of the information is we say, hey, you know, there was this one bad example. Let's just apply, let's just apply a rule that would have prevented, it wouldn't have even prevented that individual from killing. Because if you're hellbent on killing, you'll use gasoline, you'll use any number of, of other implements, it doesn't have to be a gun. How, how dumb are we? Like, mm-hmm. really, how, how dumb are we as a society? And people fall for that. And they stand on, this is Ben Shapiro's, they stand on the the graves of the children who died in those massacres and, and use that as a platform to say, just give us more power, you know, we'll transfer all your it, I guess we'll I guess this is an evergreen topic, right? Of like, you know, what are the lies that that governments tell to, to seize power? Man, I hope we can make, I don't even like this word conservative because it's always in tension with with there's you know, always liberal versus conservative, but I hope we can make more complex thinkers. Yes. I, I really, th- that's what we need to do because people will just be like, I really feel like the best thing I can do with the ballot sometimes is not vote or yes. just say no to everything. Right.
0: And and the realization when you understand that you're dealing in complex systems is that non-intervention is the, typically the first measure, right? You want to have non-intervention, let the thing sort itself out because you can't, you don't know what your, what repercussions your actions will cause in a complex system. Yeah. So it's this reverence for, nature, the complexity of nature. Whereas right now we have almost this, and, this and arrogance, society, yes. That we can just pass a law and oh we'll just that's a problem. Let's just whack that mole with a piece of legislation and we'll move on to the next one. Yep. So and that okay. is
1: that's why it's the fatal conceit. Conceit yes. because here yes. we come like <laughs> like you know, let's fix this for you. Anyway, so good stuff. Um let's figure out I'll let you get further and then let's figure out how we how we want to attack two three four five there's only five chapters luckily so we'll definitely Perfect.
0: finish all five right five episodes looking forward to it